Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again so much for this time this morning. I pray as as Dan prayed this morning also, Lord, that your presence would fill this room up today. Lord, that we would feel the presence of the Holy Spirit so heavy, Lord, that maybe the walls would shake. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would have already begun to prepare our hearts to receive a message that you knew would be preached this morning. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that we are all prepared to hear from you this morning. Lord, use me in that way, Lord, to be able to speak for you now. Lord, just set me aside, Lord, and, and use me as your tool. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, you know, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we're, we're beginning to see an escalation of the Pharisees' attitude towards Jesus. Now, if you're new, um, a Pharisee is uh, like a religious leader back in Jesus' day. They were like the highest religious leaders, the ones that studied and knew the word really well. Um, and so as Jesus is out and he's going around and he's teaching something that's a little bit different than what they're used to hearing, they become annoyed with Jesus and his teaching and they begin to look for ways that maybe they could trap him in his own words thinking that they could discredit him in front of the people who are starting to follow him. They're thinking like, wow, what we need to do is try and convince these people that are beginning to follow him to stop listening to him. They're like saying, you know, they're being deceived by this guy. They're being brainwashed. Uh, maybe if we can and show them that he doesn't know what he's talking about, then we can get them to leave Jesus and go back to where they were before. And maybe this sounds familiar to you because maybe somewhere along the line and when you became a Christian, somebody in your life, a friend or a family member said to you, you know, you're just being brainwashed over there, that church. I don't know what's going on. That's a cult. (laughs) You're being brainwashed. Or maybe you've said it to somebody in your life who when they became a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you said to them, they're just brainwashing you over there. Maybe you're here today because a friend invited you and you don't know what this is all about, but you're thinking, man, I don't know what's going on. They sing songs together. They're crying and such. (laughs) They've got this book open. I think they're being brainwashed. Well, you know, here's the fact. Being brainwashed, that's not too far off the mark, is it? Except for it's not a brainwashing. It's a heart washing. God said through Isaiah... Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. In 1 John, he writes in this letter, 1 John 1, 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David would cry out to the Lord in one of his psalms and say, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be white as snow. And you know, this was after David had committed adultery, lied to cover it up, and then had the woman's husband killed in battle so that nobody would ever know about it. Anybody worse than that guy here? Actually, you might actually be sitting there and thinking, well, you don't know me. I am worse than that guy. Well, 
doesn't matter, actually. But God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. So no matter how many or how great your sin is, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, cleansed. Well, we see that Jesus proves to be too clever to be trapped by his own words by the Pharisees. And in fact, he actually makes them look like a fool oftentimes in front of the people that they're trying to convince them that Jesus is not right. Last week, we saw the Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples of transgressing the Sabbath because as they were walking along the wheat field, they were picking and eating wheat. And they said, that's a transgression of the Sabbath. And then right after that, Jesus in their synagogue um, is presented with a man with a physical deformity that needs to be healed. And when he heals them, they say, aha, you're transgressing the Sabbath by healing the man. But Jesus points out that through this healing, he says the, the point of the Sabbath as it was given to us by the Father was so that it would be a blessing for people, not a burden on them. But the Pharisees were so blinded by their anger that they couldn't see that Jesus was trying to lift their burden as well. They were not interested in what Jesus came to offer them. They could only see what he was taking from them. You see, they were using their additions to the law of God as a way of measuring everyone's righteousness and usually measuring against their righteousness. And it would allow them to elevate themselves spiritually over everybody else. We don't really have Pharisees today, but we have legalists. Legalism or legalists are those who love the word of God for its do's and its don'ts. But they have a lot of trouble with, as Jesus puts it, mercy instead of sacrifice. Today's legalists, like Jesus' Pharisees, like the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, which is what Jesus was trying to emphasize. You see, he was stripping away their measuring stick and in turn their spiritual elevation, which was so important to them. Even though they could see that Jesus had supernatural power that they had never witnessed before, they didn't want to lose what they had in exchange for what Jesus came to offer. They decided to just kill him instead. I'm wondering, does anything in God's law about plotting the murder of a person on the Sabbath? <laughs> they, they missed that part. In fact, it's not even limited to the Sabbath. In God's Ten Commandments, he said as the sixth one, don't commit murder. I think they could have been reminded of that. You think they would have known that, but they were blinded by their anger and more interested in keeping their righteous position among the people. Well, in contrast to the Pharisees' murderous rage, Jesus speaks of the characteristics that are written of the one who was to come. He said he will not be quarrelsome. 
not publicly boastful. He's going to be gentle with those in a fragile state and encouraging to those who are struggling. That is where we left off at verse 22 in chapter 12. So let's look at that. It says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. So here we see a blind man who can't speak, who Matthew writes is demon-possessed also, and he's brought to Jesus. Presumably by a loved one or a friend, and not as a test, as many believe that the man with the withered hand in the synagogue was brought to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. But this man is brought to Jesus. He's obviously brought because, well, he's blind. How else would he find Jesus unless someone brought him? It also says that not only was he blind and mute, but he was also possessed. Many Bible teachers actually believe that it was the demon that was within him that caused him to be blind and mute as maybe a way of securing the demon's position within the body of that person. So a lot of people believed at the time that in order to extricate a demon from a person, you had to have that demon speak its name, and then that name acted as a kind of a handle which you could wrench that demon out of the person through some incantation and ritual. And so maybe this demon thought that it could secure its position within this person and make it impossible for any man to pull him out if the man he was in couldn't speak. But... Jesus isn't just any man. And so Jesus steps up to this man and heals him. The word heals here, I love this word because it means this. To reverse a physical condition in order to restore a person. To reverse and restore. That is what Jesus did for this man. He reversed his physical condition and restored him. The reason I like this is because this is exactly what he did for me. He reversed the direction that I was going, which was away from God, and restored me to relationship with him. Reversed and restored. In fact, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you've been reversed and restored, just as this man was, just as I was. If you haven't been reversed and restored, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still going in a direction that is away from God. You need to be reversed and restored. And he will do it. He is gracious that way. Here's an interesting question. How did they know that this man had a demon? He couldn't speak. They had a little name tag. Hi, I'm Ted. I have a demon. How did they know? Did he just act strange? If that were the only requirement for someone having a demon, some of y'all, we know he had a demon because Matthew writes that he had a demon. But you have to remember, Matthew wasn't writing it as it was taking place. He wrote it down after the fact. And so how did they know? In fact, it's probably more likely that they didn't and that they were bringing their friend to Jesus to be healed of his blindness and his muteness. Is that a word? Muteness? I don't know. We'll go with that. You see, the thing is, like, his friends thought that they knew this man's real problem. 
But all they could really see was the outward expression of what the problem was on the inside. Jesus saw this man and recognized what his greatest need was, the darkness that was inside, not the outward manifestation of the darkness that was inside. And so Jesus then steps up and heals him and casts out the darkness that was in. And as a result, he's healed on the outside as well. Matthew Henry writes this, Once Jesus breaks Satan's hold on a life, the eyes are opened to see God's glory, and the lips are opened to speak his praise. Let's look at the reaction, though, of the crowd now that was there. In verse 23, it says, And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Well, after Jesus casts out this demon and heals this man, they look at Jesus and all of a sudden they're like, wow, we just brought him to be healed. But look, you've cast out a demon that maybe we didn't even know was in there. This guy could be the Messiah. Son of David was a way of referring to the one that was to come, the Messiah. And he, they now are looking at me like, whoa, who is this man? We thought he was maybe a healer, but he just did something. Why was their reaction so uh, like this? Well, you understand, Jesus had just cast out a demon without having to have the demon speak its name, without even, from what I could see, even touching the man. He simply just healed him. Jesus was able to demonstrate divine power, which they'd not ever experienced before. Because Jesus had cast out a demon without knowing his name and without a special incantation or ritual, to them this was the real demonstration of divine power. All of a sudden, they're asking themselves, is this maybe the guy that we've been told about our whole life? A realization of Jesus' divine power caused them to rethink who Jesus was. Well, pastor, if only Jesus would do a demonstration of divine power for me, then I would believe in him too. Can I tell you something? He's already done that. Do you understand that Jesus went into the grave a dead man and rose from the grave defeating death? That is the ultimate demonstration of divine power that is here for us to know. Do you need something to show you that he has divine power? Look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There it is. Now you should believe. If you don't, I, and I, by the way, I'm not making that up. You can read for it yourself. It's in here. It's like in three different books. If you stick around, we'll get to it in Matthew. I mean, it's probably three and a half years from now at the rate we're going, but a lot of potlucks in between there. So, Look at the Pharisees' reaction to the people's reaction. In verse 24, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. This whole thing makes me laugh because it feels like we're right back on the playground. They see an act of supernatural power that they now cannot... Um, say didn't happen. Everyone saw it. They're right there. Jesus did it. It's not like they can say that didn't happen because everyone's like, uh, hello, we're right here. We saw it happen. So then they say, okay, we can't say it didn't happen. So this is what we'll say. You're the devil. You're a loser, Jesus. You're the devil. And Jesus ultimately will say, I know you are, but what am I? It's, it's literally not in those exact words, but that is what he's going to say. This is not a logical argument 
from the Pharisees. It's an emotional response. They're mad. They thought maybe they had him on the ropes at one point. They're plotting how to kill him. He steps up and demonstrates divine power in front of a crowd of people. And they're like, this is the Messiah. Now, don't you think like there's a moment there? Like Jesus is going to say he knew their thoughts when they say you were of the devil. He doesn't mean he, they didn't say it out loud. He means I know that you don't actually believe that. You're just trying to hurt me. Don't you believe that there's a moment that they also could have said, maybe he is the Messiah, the one that we've all been looking for. But the hold on their position was so strong, they did not want to give up that, even though the one who might be the one to come was standing right before them. He said, keep going back to that. No, they have an emotional response from anger. They say, you know what? Let's just try and say the most hurtful thing we can think of to try and hurt him. You're the devil, they say. And we look at that and we say, man, they're so evil, they're so bad, but have you ever said anything mean in an emotional response to something someone else said or did? You ever said anything that maybe you think about later and be like, that doesn't even make sense and why would I have said that? But in the moment, you're like, ha, you're the devil. Jesus says, that's, that's not even logical. Look at what his response is. Jesus says he knew their thoughts, and he said to them in verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. First of all, he tells them something they all already know. This was common knowledge. This was actually even a saying that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. He just quotes it back to them, and then he says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This doesn't make any sense. You're, are you, what you've just said to me is that Satan is casting out Satan? Why would Satan cast himself out? And then he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast these out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. That's where he says, I know you are, but what am I? Because he says, if you say that I cast out demons by the power of the devil, and then you do it, who are you doing it by? And they're like, hmm. I didn't think that all the way through with that whole you're the devil thing. But he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you. Do you see, I mean, I, look, Jesus does kind of, you know, spank them a couple of times, but he constantly goes back to compassion for them because he says to them, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then do you know that the kingdom of heaven is present? I'm here for you. It feels like he just keeps giving them chance after chance after chance to get to that place of, oh, okay, I believe you. But I am so glad. How many chances did it take for you to come to that same place? How many? <laughs> exactly. So like, well, let me check my diary. Dear diary, today Jesus came. <laughs> for me, it was several. Several times. I grew up in the church. It was around me all the time. And I was just like, ah. I want to live a life that's fun, not a boring Christian life. Boo! <laughs> Let me tell you what, it's not boring. I can at least tell you that. It ain't boring. But he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then I am who I say I am. And 
I am in your midst. I'm right here. I'm right in front of you. Or how can a strong man, uh, um, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he plunders his house? This is a little bit of a confusing, confusing verse, but here's the deal. The devil in the, is the strong man in this verse. Jesus is saying that in order for, like, I'm coming in and I'm binding the strong man that's in your house. It is a really great verse where Jesus is saying, I am greater than the devil. You have to understand that because there, I don't know where this comes from exactly, but it's like this idea like, okay, maybe there's a God and then you've got like Jesus and the devil and they're like on equal ground battling each other out. And can I just tell you, there is no equality between Jesus and the devil. They're not like equal good and bad. All right. The devil was a created being and Jesus is not. Jesus is God in bodily form that we get to see here on earth. He is greater than the devil. In fact, the Bible says that greater is he that is in you, Jesus, than who is in the world. Jesus is saying, I am greater even than the strong man, and I will go in and bind the strong man. Jesus points out that in the same sense, light and darkness cannot coexist. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians, what fellowship can righteousness have with unrighteousness or light with darkness? Light and darkness cannot occupy the same space. One will overtake the other. In fact, light will always overcome darkness. Do you know that there's actually no such thing as darkness? It's not a thing. It's a result of the lack or absence of light. No one goes into a room like, wow, I want it, I want it darker and, and somehow turn up the darkness you turn down the light. You reduce the light. You take away the light. That's where darkness comes from. But if the light enters in, the darkness goes away. Jesus is saying, you can't have light and darkness even in the same house. The light will overcome the dark. Now he says this to the Pharisees specifically, he who is not with me is against me. The Pharisees, these are the religious leaders. These are the ones who study the word. They study, they memorize the word, and now they're teaching everybody else. And he's saying, look, if you're not with me, and I'm of the Spirit of God, then you're against me. In fact, what Jesus is doing is he is knocking down for us the, the fence. The fence. There's no fence. Oh, people will say, well, I don't know, but when it comes to Jesus, I'm on the fence. There's no fence. There is no fence. He's, he's done away with the fence. Right in this verse, he says, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either working with me or you're scattering what I'm doing. There's no fence. So if you were sitting on that fence, sorry. But he says, you can be with me or you can choose to be against me. That's a very sobering fact, gang. Years ago, up in New York, when I lived there, I was preaching a similar message where Jesus says, you're either with me or you're my enemy. And there was a friend's dad there who was like, thought about that all week. He kept saying to himself, I don't want to be God's enemy. And it brought him to a place of, I need to be with Jesus. You need to be with Jesus. Or you are against Jesus. That's a very sobering fact. But he makes it so simple for you. He says, I sent my son to die for you, 
to cover the cost of your sin, you simply need to come to me and say, I believe that I'm a sinner and that I need that and that he did that. Done. Done. You're with Jesus there. He says in verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay. What he is talking about here, and first of all, you need to see this. This is, this is remember when we talked about, you know, has, ha, ha, has that empty? <laughs> the glass half full or the glass half empty. Remember we talked about that? Well, uh, a glass half empty person will look at this and say, wow, this, this sounds scary. And it's talking about like blasphemy and not, not forgiveness and, and things like that. But a, a, a half full person will look at this and say, man, look at the compassion and the grace that I see coming from Jesus here. Because he's saying that there is no sin that you can commit that is unforgivable. For, let's, just, let's just park there for a second. There is no sin that you can commit that is that is not forgivable. So you may be thinking, yeah, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've done it. In fact, on the way here today to church, right now, while I'm sitting here. And you know what? I don't need to know. God knows, and he says, there isn't anything that you've done that is not forgivable. Except, (laughs) darn it, He says, blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was something I did. I can't be forgiven. You know, if someone comes to you ever and says, look, I'm really concerned because I think, I hope I didn't, but I think I committed the unforgivable sin. Then you can say, rest assured that you have not committed the unforgivable. If you're worried about whether you have, if you're afraid, I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin, then the answer is you haven't committed the unforgivable sin because here's the unforgivable sin and it's the only one because every other sin is forgivable as he says. It is rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit before you, you know, like at the point before you die. What is the, what is the rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit? What's the witness of the Holy Spirit? Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But if you say, no, I don't buy that. I think that's a bunch of hooey. I think you're all being brainwashed. That's rejecting his witness. But here's the thing. Nobody on this side of death has yet to commit that sin that's unforgivable. Because you can reject Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit up until your last breath, and it's still forgivable. There was a website that I had heard that you could go on and you could take an oath rejecting Jesus. You could fill out this little form. You could reject Jesus. You could reject God. You could, you could blaspheme. They like to use that word because it's a scary religious word. You could blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You could even pledge your allegiance to the devil and click accept and, the, you know, and all that. And still, that's forgivable before you die. You have up until the last second of your life here on earth to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. But here's a warning. Don't wait. People will say, you know what? I hear what you're saying. It sounds pretty good. I do like that whole heaven thing. So um, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to have my fun now. And then later on down the road, 
I'll, you know, I'll accept that whole Jesus thing and then I'll, I'll get my pass to heaven and it'll all be good. As if the Christian life is not fun and exciting. They're like, oh my, oh my, fine. You know, when I get to be really old, like 50, <laughs> and all my fun is done, and you know, I'm just going to sit around and watch the grass grow, I guess then I'll become a Christian, whatever. You know, the Christian life is not boring. I'll, give you, I'll tell you, I, that's for sure. And, and, and it actually can be amazing. But if you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going you know, to have my fun first and then I'll get to that whole, you know, getting saved for my sins and all that stuff. Well, here's the thing. I know two things I know. Number one, I've done too many funerals lately. The people who did not know that that day was their last day. Nobody knows their last day. The Bible says that it's up to God. He determines that. You don't know. You could be sitting here saying, you know what? For my 50th birthday, it's going to be a big celebration. I'm going to accept Jesus. But not for the next you know, 20 years, I'm just going to live it up. And you could die tomorrow. You don't know. But here's the even more subtle and scarier one. The longer that you reject Christ, the harder it becomes to accept. It's called a calloused heart. Do you know what a callous is? I got one for you guys. I, I got it just for the service this morning. I, I worked really hard all week and got a callus on my hand so I could point to it right there. But if you ever had a callus on your body, you know that that is like really thick, hard skin that you can poke at it and you can stick it with a pin even um, and it, you don't feel anything. And the more you reject the witness of the Holy Spirit, the more calloused your heart becomes. So the point is, you won't want to receive Christ when you're 50 or whenever it is. There's no time like today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. And you know what? If you ignore that and then you open up your Bible, you could read that verse tomorrow and tomorrow it'll say today is the day of your salvation. And whatever day you read that is the day that is the day of your salvation. But don't wait. Please don't wait. You don't know and you will become calloused and it'll be harder and harder and harder. And by the way, I don't like get any kind of a prize or anything if anybody decides to like, all right, I'm going to accept Jesus. It's not like I'm like, check, got another one. Listen, I'm not trying to win. <laughs> that, you know, I've heard it said in some churches, like, we win souls for the Lord. And I'm like, I'm just really not comfortable with that analogy or that, that phrase. I don't win if you get saved. You win, actually, if you get saved. I just, you know what? I just want to enjoy heaven with you, I guess. You know, it's, it's not a contest. Oh, he says in verse 33, either make the tree good um, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. You know, he's kind of going back to that, you, you know, light and dark can't coexist. A good tree isn't going to produce bad fruit, and a bad tree isn't going to produce good fruit. This is an analogy that people understand. A good tree produces good fruit. When I was growing up, my dad bought two apple trees and planted them in our yard, and I thought, this is amazing Free apples all the time. We're going to be picking apples off the tree and eating them right there. You know what I didn't realize is it takes like a thousand years in kid time 
for an apple tree to produce fruit. And that stupid tree never produced any good fruit. And, you know, once it finally did produce, like every, every fall it'd be like, oh man, apples. And they'd be like these horrible little green, hard, like apples that were horrible. When I went home recently, like a few weeks ago for a family wedding, I went to my parents' backyard, and you want to know what's left of those two apple trees? A dead stump. Those trees got cut down. Because after a while, they weren't producing fruit, and my dad was like, okay, we're done, and cut them down. Now there's one dead stump. They were cut down and thrown in the fire. Bad trees, bad fruit. He says, good trees, good fruit, bad trees, bad fruit. Essentially what he's saying to them is, you're a bad tree. The fruit you're producing is bad fruit. That means you are a bad tree. And then he says, and this must have really bugged them, brood of vipers. He says, you say I'm of the devil? You're the offspring of the snake. They must have been like, what? He says, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. (gasps) Man, you ever listen to yourself? Do you ever listen to the things that you say to other people? Or do you say to other people about other people? The Bible says that from what's inside your heart is what is coming out of your mouth. A few years ago, I made a reference to us all as tea bags, right? If you pick up a tea bag that doesn't have a label on it, you don't know what's in there until you put that tea bag in hot water. And then sometimes it's good and spicy and yummy. And other times it's like green tea that's just like bitter and gross and nobody wants that. But you don't know what's inside until it goes into the hot water, right? So when you're in hot water, what comes out? Spicy, good, yummy or bitter green tea? What's on the inside? Because what, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good, uh, and a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasures, brings evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the days of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The word idle there, uh, for every idle word, it means careless. The careless words, he's saying, the careless words that you use about me right now are a reflection of who you are. They were, they were saying horrible, nasty things about Jesus. He was saying, I'm from, I, I'm from heaven. I'm from my Father in heaven, and I'm doing good. You're an evil tree turning out bad fruit, and you're saying bad things about me. You will be accountable for those words, he says to them. He says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Remember, this doesn't mean that, this doesn't mean that you as a believer are going to get into heaven, and, you're going to, and, and Jesus is going to pull out your pile of every word you've ever said and go, all right, let's go through every word you've ever said. Um, see, this is talking about those who have uh, things, careless things, to say about Jesus. Or rather, remember he said it in the last couple chapters, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, which is what they're doing, I'll deny you before the Father, which means, he goes, you will be condemned by your words. 
remember, this is, this is what will happen, is, is every one of us will go and stand before the Lord, and the Lord will say, what did you do with my son? And if you say, he is my savior, he died for my sins on the cross, I believe that, Jesus will say, yes, Father, he's mine. But if God looks at you and says, what did you do with my son? And you say, oh, well, I don't know where I put him. You know what? I didn't really know your son too well, but I did a lot of good things in my life. I led a good life. Jesus will say, I don't know this one. What a terrifying moment that will be for anyone who hears Jesus say to the father, I don't know who this is. Man. In verse 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. These guys want to see a sign from Jesus. They're like, Jesus, if you would just show us some kind of a demonstration of your divine power, we would believe. And I'm surprised that Jesus doesn't say, do you mean other than casting out the demon, healing the blind and the mute guy? You mean other than that? And essentially what they're saying is, if you would do one of our choosing, if you would do it in the way that we're asking you to do it rather than the way that you know to do, then we would believe. If you would just work in the way that we want you to work, then I would believe all of this Jesus stuff. And you know, we laugh at them and we look at them and say, that's so, they're so ridiculous. But who here hasn't said, Lord, if you would just do it the way that I think it would work out, then we'd all be happy. Jesus, could you, just, could you just do it this way? Could you just bless this thing that I'm holding up to you? Could you do it my way? And Jesus doesn't know Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Jesus says this after he's done shaking his head. It says that um, he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with, the gen with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater one than Jonah is here. This is one of the coolest things that I think Jesus has ever said, besides the fact that he you know, has forgiven my sins. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of Jonah. Now, a really quick summary about Jonah, prophet of God that God came to and said, I want you to go to Nineveh. It's a wicked city. Their wickedness has come up before my eyes. I want you to go there and I want you to tell them that they have 40 days until I destroy their city. And Jonah says, nope. <laughs> and off he goes into another direction because Jonah knows, because he says it later in the story, in the account, he says to the Lord, I know that you are a good and gracious and loving God, and if I tell them to repent, and they do, that you will forgive them instead of destroying them, and I'd rather you destroy them altogether because I hate the Ninevites. So Jonah says, because I know that will happen, um, I'm just going to run away and wait out the 40 days somewhere else. I can wait them out, and then you'll kill them all, and then we'll all be happy. So Jonah gets on a boat 
and sails in the opposite direction as if you can just sail away from wherever God is. Somehow, this prophet of God thought that I'll just get on a boat and go in another direction and God will never find me and I'm just going to be real quiet in the bottom. Only we see that God knew exactly where Jonah was and sends a huge storm upon this boat. So great a storm, it says in the account, that the boat was about to be broken up. And all the people on the boat, the people that were sailing the ship, they start freaking out and they start praying to all of their different gods in hopes that one of them will actually save them. Finally, the captain goes down and he wakes up Jonah and he says, would you please pray to your God so in case it's you that this is because of, that maybe he'll spare us. And so Jonah comes up and instead of saying anything, he lets them draw straws to see whose God is the mad one. And so, wouldn't you know it, he gets the short straw. And so he says, okay, yep, it's me. It's my God. He's mad at me. So he says, throw me overboard and everything will be fine for you. He Throw me into this raging sea. Now there's the first really amazing comparison that Jesus is making. He says, Jonah was willingly cast into the sea, sure death to appease the wrath of God in that moment. And Jesus would do the same thing. Jesus would willingly go to the cross, a sure death, to appease the wrath of God on humanity's sin. First really cool comparison. Well, there's, as soon as Jonah hits the water, it's calm. And I think the guys on that boat were like, okay, see you later, Jonah, we're out of here. Not taking any chances. But it says that God had prepared a great fish to come and swallow up Jonah, which it does. It comes up. And there's Jonah in the belly of this great fish for three days, just kind of like washing around. You can read it. It was like seaweed was wrapped around his head and, and he was miserable, which I guess you would be in the belly of a great fish for three days. He calls out and he prays to God. And it says that God spoke to the fish. You can read this. He spoke to the fish and the fish vomited up Jonah onto the shore of, guess where? Nineveh. God brought forth Jonah from the belly of the fish. That's the second one. God will bring forth Jesus from the tomb in order to complete the mission just as he did for Jonah. Now Jonah ultimately decides that, you know, I guess I better go into the city of Nineveh, and I believe that Jonah was a sight after three days in the stomach acid of a large fish. Many people believe that his hair was out, fallen out and that his skin was bleached white, and he probably looked like a freak as he walked into the city of Nineveh, which was a huge city, and all he said, because remember, he did not want them to repent, all it says is that he said, 40 days and you guys are toast. Now that, that's a little bit of a paraphrase, but then he turns around And he walks out. The people of Nineveh are so touched by this message that they literally start ripping their clothes and putting sackcloth on and ashes on their head and start repenting of their evil ways simply because Jonah said, God's going to destroy you in 40 days. Bye-bye. They were so serious about it, they went out and put sackcloth on all of their livestock as well to show that even our livestock are sorry. 
The king finds out about this in Nineveh, and he declares that everybody must mourn and repent over their sin. And it says that God saw their repentance, and he did not destroy them. And how happy do you think that made Jonah? <laughs> he was so angry at God that he storms out of the city. He just was like, goes up, and he sits on a hill. And God goes, you're mad? And he says, I knew you were going to do that. I knew that you would do that because you're a kind, compassionate, loving God. I knew that if they repented, you would forgive them and not destroy them. So you might as well just kill me, is what Jonah says. What a big, fat baby. Well, that's, that's kind of the, the part of the story that Jesus didn't really refer to that part. So he was talking about the fact that he would willingly cast himself upon the cross so that he could appease the wrath of God for the sake of everyone who would call upon him later. That's the only sign that he said that he would give them. He then says, this is the last, we're going to end here, he says, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment. Excuse me, he says the... Um, will rise up in judgment with this, with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. He says, the queen of Sheba came, and she came to Solomon 1,200 miles just to hear some wisdom from a man of God, and he says, I'm here Right in your midst. She traveled 1,200 miles to hear some wisdom from a person who had been given wisdom by God. I am him, and I'm in your midst right now. I'm standing right in front of you. You have an opportunity right now. And the fact is, it's still the same message to you. Jesus is literally saying, I am in your presence right now. And I am offering this to you. You have but to reach out and accept it. That's it. It's as simple as that. And we're going to end. We're going to end on that note today. And we're going to pick it up the rest of the chapter the next time I'm here, which will be in two weeks, by the way. I'm going on vacation. He says, I'm in your midst. You don't actually have to be in church to be in the midst of Jesus, do you? You don't have to be. He can be in your car, in your home, everywhere you are. So says you can go to the highest mountain, down to the depths of the lowest sea. There is nowhere where you are out of reach of the hand of God. And that could be very comforting and also very frightening. Because you think, like Jonah, that you can go somewhere where God isn't. Can't do it. But he says, I'm in your midst right now. Just reach out. Just reach out. Take my hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your message today, and for your word that you've kept for us. Lord, and for this opportunity to gather together and to open it. Lord, I thank you that you've reached into our hearts today. Lord, I pray that we would take something from what you spoke today. Lord, that our lives would be changed even a little, maybe a great deal, as we leave this place, Lord. And thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that whatever was said today would have reached into their very soul. Lord, that they would not be any longer rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit, which points to you, 
thank you, Lord. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.